Take your Bibles and go with me to 1 John chapter 2 and also to the Gospel of John chapter 14. And we'll get to the Gospel of John a little bit later as we go into this. 1 John chapter 2. A number of years ago now, uh, I started a, uh, an endeavor. It ended up being one of those uh, challenges that uh, you look back on and go, wow, I'm sure glad that's over with. But I found myself enrolled at uh, school up in Waco, one of those small Baptist schools up there. And um, the way the first year of that education process went, I had to be on campus for two weeks at a time, three different times during one year. And so uh, the first trip up there um, in what little free time we had, I I was intrigued with going out to a location that is famous, or maybe a better way to say that it's infamous in American history. And that is that place out on the outskirts of Waco that seized our national, in fact, world attention in 1993, which was before some of your time, I know, but for those of us who are a little bit older, we remember well the days of the siege on the Branch Davidian Complex, which was just outside of Waco. And so when I found myself with some extended time in Waco, I set about to try to go to find that place. I remembered the news reports of that and, you know, the news people were stationed in a two-mile perimeter, if I remember right, and so everything that we could see was shooting from a long distance and uh, those images on film are graphic even to this day for us to see, especially as we worked through that whole length a lengthy process of the siege that finally culminated when that complex was set afire and many people died that day in April 1993. I wanted to see that. And uh, so I started asking around some of the people that were in Waco in the circle that I was involved with with that education process. And, and I found pretty quickly that apparently that was one of those topics and one of those questions and one of those searches that you just don't ask about in Waco. I I don't know if that's true for everybody, but everybody that I talked to uh, very quickly dismissed me and dismissed the question and said, no, I don't know where that is, or uh, you don't want to go out there, or those kind of things. And so, you know how I am. I'm so concerned about public perceptions of me that I just let that it didn't deter me at all. As a matter of fact, even more, I wanted to get out there. And so I continued to ask. And finally, the third trip uh, to Waco during that calendar year for my education process, I finally found somebody who gave me general directions. But his comment to me was, I don't know why you would want to go out there. And so I set out, jumped in the car that I was driving in those days, and I made my way outside of town out to the general vicinity that this guy had told me about and uh, began to search. As I got out there, I recognized the landscape from those TV newscasts of that stretch way back when. And uh, finally, I turned down a dirt road and just probably a quarter of a mile or maybe a half mile down that dirt road, dropping down into a little bit of a wash. There was the entrance uh, to this little hilltop kind of a Place It really, if you're just driving by, you'd never know of the worldwide significance of that spot. 
And so I thought I saw a marker of some kind. I got out of my car and I went over and looked. And sure enough, there on the ground was a stone that had been polished and engraved. And in it said, the branch. And then there was a passage of scripture there. And uh, and I realized at that point that I had found the entrance place. And I was standing probably maybe 100 yards, 75 yards from where that whole complex went up in flames. And those people died. Those days especially, but stretching into these days, that event pushes me to ask a basic question. And I've tried to find good answers for this, and I think maybe there's just one really good answer for this. But here's the question. As we look back to that event in American history, that catastrophe, however you want to describe it, the question that comes to my mind is how could a group of people be so gullible as to sell themselves to a lie? If you don't know the background of the Branch Davidian complex and that whole thing, I would encourage you to go do a little bit of research, not so much into the siege itself, but into the guy who was the charismatic leader of that group, David Koresh. And the claims that he made and the teachings that he seemed to put out there on a consistent basis were such that that group of people somehow decided that that was truth. And they gave their lives for what they considered to be truth. How could people be so gullible as to buy into that kind of lie? The pathway of Christian history is littered with broken people and broken dreams due to false teaching. Don't think that you are so sophisticated, even in your faith, that you couldn't fall victim to a false teaching or a false teacher somewhere down the line. History is full of smart people, committed people, who got just a little bit off But in that little bit off as it relates to truth over an extended period of time, that takes them incredibly far away from God and from truth. That's not really that hard to envision. Think of it this way. If I'm standing here and my intent is to get to the back of this room in the center, all I have to do is walk that way, right? Okay, I'll have to move a few chairs. or You want to see me climb chairs? It might be worth the price of admission. Stick around for that. But if I want to get there, I just need to go straight, right? But if at the very outset of that journey, I take one step to the left and turn my focus just a little bit over that distance of time, I'm going to be a long ways from the center there. What if I extended that for five years worth of walking? You see, all it takes is one misstep when it comes to handling truth or recognizing truth, and better said as it relates to this, to recognizing false truth teaching, and before you know it, you're way out of where God would want you to be. That's not just true for us. That's been true in the Christian life from the early days. 1 John chapter 2 helps us to see that. As remember, I've begun into this process of looking at John's letter that we call 1 John, and I'm trying to do a couple of things. First of all, rather than a verse-by-verse Uh, walk through it, which is what I normally would want to do. I'm taking John's 
Well, I started to say taking his structure, but the problem is John doesn't have a lot of structure. He writes this book not like a writer, but like a fisherman. And he's kind of all over the map, and so he gives us four basic points of his writing. I write these things so that, and then he'll tell us why. But he throws those things in various places, and then his argument is kind of circular, and so he'll hit this one point, and he'll sustain it a little bit, and then he'll be on to another point, sustain that one, and he'll come back to his first one later on, and he's just kind of all over the map with that. And so what I want us to do is to look at his letter, first of all, by taking those key points and seeing what his arguments are to hold that point up. And part of that, we've started with actually the last of those points of purpose. It's in chapter 5, verse 13, I think it is, where he says, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the reasons I start there is because I think until you can just nail that down in your own life and know for a fact that you are a child of God and nothing can change that, until you know that, some of the other stuff he has to say will be lost because you'll be fighting that initial battle. So he says, I write so that you may know that you have eternal life, and he gives us this support for that. In 1 John chapter 2, he's giving us some of that support on how you can know that you belong to Jesus Christ. And we're going to come to that argument in just a moment, but I want us to hammer down for just a moment, and let me establish in our thinking how easy it is for us to encounter false teaching And if you encounter it without being aware of it, then you easily step off into it. A critical skill for Christian living is to be able to discern truth. And if we fail to discern truth, then we stand in danger of losing our entire missional approach to living. You do recognize what... Uh, Barbara and Rory were talking about up here in the interview earlier. They're, they're one element of our church's attempt to help us be better at reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, are you okay with that? Because if you're not okay with that, you're in the wrong church, okay? Because that's what we're about. Jesus called us to be about making disciples. The first step of making a disciple is helping them come to know Jesus Christ. And sometimes you do that through their bellies or through a toothbrush in this case or whatever it may be. That's what we're about, that missional living. Every relationship that you have is an opportunity for you to share the life that Jesus Christ has given to you. That's part of our vision statement as a church, that as we go out from this place, we go sharing life with people. With that kind of an emphasis, and that comes from Jesus Christ himself, it's not something that a bunch of church people just dreamed of. That's the charge that Jesus has given to all of us as his followers. And with something that is as important as that, don't you think that Satan, if he could just get us off a little bit when it comes to truth, don't you think that he would try to do that? Because it paralyzes us in missional living. With that in mind, let's look at this. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28 is where I want to begin. That can't be right. Give me a second. Thank you. 26. I sound like my wife. There you go. My wife bailed me out again. <laughs> First John 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying 
to deceive you. John underscores a truth that is not only true in our time, it was true in his time, it's been true all along in this thing we call Christian history. John writes to a group of people, as far as that context, let's kind of set that so that we understand what's going on before we pull it into our time. John is writing to a group of people that very likely were beginning to hear from some of these teachers who were probably the early uh, presentation of a heresy called Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Uh, Gnosticism is, is, uh, was a point of reference, a heresy that grew up that was built off of two basic truths. Here's the first one. They believed that everything having to do with the flesh was evil. And they, had, they also believed, the other truth was that if it had to do with spirit, that it, it was just good. Okay, it was good. So the problem with that comes into how we view Jesus Christ. Because the Gnostics would say if everything is, that's flesh is evil, they had to deny the humanity of Jesus. Because they wouldn't accept that Jesus could be human, therefore in their view, evil, and still be able to save all that are lost. And so they began to push this heresy out that Jesus was really just a man, but the Spirit came on him, the Spirit's inherently good, and it came on him at a certain point, most of them would say his baptism, uh, and, and then that's when he did all of these great things. They would probably say that's why in his childhood we don't have very much record of him, because they said that's when he was just human. And so all of this time through his ministry, he's doing these great things because the Spirit controls him at that point. But then at the cross, the Spirit leaves him. And he's just an evil man again. Now, hear me say this, okay? Everybody look at me. So when Teresa used to do our kids, you look at me right. Look at me and hear this, okay? That that I just described is heresy. It's not true, Okay? Scripture tells us that Jesus was 100% man and yet 100% God. He was never, ever was, never, ever will be evil. It doesn't compute. It's oil and water, except you can't even get those together. Jesus is the Son of God. You with me on that? Okay. If you're going to call me a heretic, don't do it on that point, because I guarantee you that's not where we're at. So John's addressing a church where that influence is beginning to seep in. And these people that he was responsible for as his followers, they're, they're really not his followers. They're the ones that he's been responsible for in their discipling process. And he's aware now that these false teachers have gotten in. And so he writes this so that they can get that corrected. Look at the effect that that teaching had. And look at what John calls them. I want to go back and begin reading in verse 18 now. And let's read through where we just were. Chapter 2, verse 18. Listen to how John labels those false teachers. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, let me stop for a minute. I don't really have the time to do this, but I know that if I don't get this done, I'm going to lose some of you right here. One of the realities of our time, I, I, it's so easy for church people to get fascinated with eschatology in times. And they so get so fascinated with it that some people get fixated on it. And so then everything they do in Scripture, they start 
looking for that, and it start, everything starts jumping out. And so when I use the term here, antichrist, actually John uses it, not me. When we use that term, many people immediately jump to, okay, well, who's that? That's got to be Barack Obama. <laughs> or whomever you want it to be. John speaks into a church in that time stretching into our time, but especially in that first century, they knew the truths that there is coming a time when God will put an end to all of this madness, the end times as we call them. And so John knows that they know that. Jesus spoke to that. And so the term antichrist here, he's referring to what we normally think of in that first verse that I read. It is the last hour and the end of time, in other words. And as you have heard, that antichrist is coming. He's saying, yes, all that you've heard, that's true. That's happening. That will happen. But the latter part of that verse, so now many antichrists, that's with an S, that means it's plural. That means now he's moving off of the end time expectation and dropping the right square in their lap right there where they lived. Here's the part for us that we need to get from that. This is less, at this point, that he's talking about. It's less of an individual and more of a way of life. These people who very literally translated are against Christ. They filled the churches then. They fill our world and our churches today. He says, that's a point of reference. We know that we're in the last days. That's the rest of verse 18. Let me pick up reading now in verse 19. They went out from us. That is those who were against Christ. They were part of us in this mix. But verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might become plain that they all are not of us. John says those people who have stepped out have proven that they're against Christ. That's a pretty strong statement. Let's see what else he says because now he begins to talk to them, which is by extension to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge, or you have all knowledge. Verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. And now he's back to those antichrist people, as he's called them. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. In other words, what I've taught you from day one, hang on to it. This is a point that I'll also remind you, one of the ways we're trying to get through this series is by taking these words from John in this letter and going back into John's gospel to see where he first learned those truths. So now's a good time. Keep your place here and let's go back to John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, we find these words of Jesus in verses 15 through 17. John 14 verses 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Is, in your Bibles, is the word helper uh, uh, capitalized like it is on our screens? You know why that is? Basic, basic grammar, okay? Because it's a proper name, okay? It's a person. This is not just, oh, yeah, we're going to send somebody, 
This is the helper. We know this as the Holy Spirit. The word that we pull across into English is the paraclete, the one who is called alongside an advocate for us, a support for us. And it drives to the heart of what we're trying to see today. Let's go in verse 16 again. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another. Okay, now let's talk about that word. Because this word, another, is not like a, okay, a different one. This is one that the word literally means another one just like me, Jesus says. Well, that makes sense since the Holy Spirit is God as Jesus is God, as God the Father is God. That's the term we use, Trinity. Of course, he's one just like me because he is me. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you. Great statement now. And will be in you. So I'll pull the whole sermon together to this. Don't get your hopes up. I'm not through yet. But I'll pull it down to this. The way you avoid false teaching is you listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit who is within you who prompts you in how to live. In the book of Isaiah, one of my favorite passages in all Scripture. There's a reference there where Isaiah is prophesying to the people who are going to be living under the curse of disobedience and apostasy. And he tells them there comes a day when the teacher, and that's also a capital letter there, the teacher will whisper over your shoulder, this is the way. Walk here. This is the way. Turn here. From the Old Testament through the New, from the early part of Scripture all the way back here to the back section in 1 John, we find this constant teaching for us that God is so loving of his people that he refuses to leave them alone. Jesus comes in the flesh. He takes these 12 guys plus a bunch of other people but especially these three, one of whom is this guy named John, and he pours himself into them for three years plus. And then now in John chapter 14, at the end of that time frame, he says to these guys in this extended discourse, 14 through 17, Jesus is pouring himself into these guys before he goes to the cross. And he says, okay, now I'm going to be leaving, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Matter of fact, let's just go ahead and jump over to John 16. Let's get all of these done while we're over there. John chapter 16, verses 12 and 14. 12 through 14. Here's what Jesus says. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth, the word spirit there is capitalized. That's a name. The Holy Spirit, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What he says to us, now we'll go back over to 1 John, finish out that part of it. What Jesus is saying 
And those words that must have been ringing in the ears of the Apostle John as he confronts false teaching in this church and he begins to see some of these people that are dear to him. He calls them my dear children at various places in this letter. And he sees them begin to follow false teaching and trickle away from the life that Jesus offers. Those words of Jesus had to ring through his ears. Listen. Listen to my voice from my spirit who takes up residence in you. In Baptist life, we call that the priesthood of every believer. That you don't need somebody else to go before God because you have the Holy Spirit. When you accept Christ as your Savior, he takes up residence in you. So you don't have to go to a priest and say, hey, I need you to pray for me. It's not that you don't want other people to pray for you. You just don't have to do that because the Holy Spirit indwells you. But part of that Holy Spirit in you also is that one who prompts you to the truth. You may call it your conscience. The problem with that is so many people seem to have no conscience. It is the voice of God as he takes up residence in you, steering you into truth. Back to verse 28, and we still haven't really answered my question, that gnawing question. How could people be so gullible? As a matter of fact, with the truth that we've just seen in Scripture, it just begs the question even more. With the Holy Spirit involved in our whole existence, how can we be so gullible as to follow false teaching? Well, the reality is that as important as it is for us to follow Christ, Satan then works extra hard for, I believe, to try to get us off track. And he's a master at deceit. Let me just, I just sat and kind of considered a few ways that Satan tries to deceive us. Back to chapter 2, verse 26. He says, I write to those who are trying to deceive you. How are we deceived? What are the opportunities for deceit for us in our day? Just very quickly, I want to run through these. You know, one of the realities of our time is that truth seems to be under attack all the time. Some of that is because of our postmodern approach to living these days. Now, that's a big term with a lot of implications under it. Let me just hit one of the highlights of postmodernism. It is that part of our lives that makes truth relative. It's what I call privatized truth. In other words, it works for me, so it's truth. But it may not work for you, so it doesn't have to be truth for you. Let me give you an example of that. I know of a guy, I know him very well, who as a teenager was involved in a lot of um, illegal stuff, uh, especially tied to drug culture. And at one point in that discussion uh, that happened because his mother, who was a preacher's wife, said to him, Mark, I know, um, sorry, (laughs) got busted by his mother for having marijuana in his car. I know that guy pretty well. That was not a good day in his life. And in the discussion that happened there, this preacher's wife, mother, Goody two-shoes mother. Mind your own business, mom, mother. Was pushing this kid. How could you do this? It's against the law. You know what the answer was? 
I don't agree with that law. Now, don't look at me like you're going to send me to jail, okay? Because I've seen some of you drive. (laughs) You see how easy it is? That truth is not for me. That, that, that just not for me. If it works for you, that's fine. My comment to my mom was, I don't agree with that law. You know what her comment to me was? Tough. It's the law. Well, but see, it wasn't for me. And it wasn't going to be for me. Because I was, even then, before the dawn of postmodernism, I was very postmodern in my thinking, which was, I'll do what works for me. You do what works for you, that's fine. You with me? You see how truth is relative? When you watch the news and you want to throw something at those people on the TV because they don't see it the way you do. Well, they're just children of the age. They are. And you are. Here's where that's a problem. Here's where that fits into the deception that I'm talking about. Satan is a master at this. If he can get us to make truth relative... How do you then tell somebody the wages of sin is death? How do you get somebody to the point where they recognize I need a savior? Because if I don't believe that sin is an issue, if I don't believe that doing wrong or being a sinner, better said, it's not a matter of what you do, it's a matter of who you are. If I don't believe that and that truth is rejected by me, then by definition, I don't need a Savior, right? The problem with that is truth says the wages of sin is death. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus himself. By the way, what did Jesus call himself? I am, this is John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Satan is a master at moving us just a little bit off and then finding ourselves years later down a dead-end path because we walked away from truth. John will have none of that with his people. That is the time in which we live. And no truth is free from being examined. And here's where that goes horribly wrong. Well, another place, because what we just talked about is horribly wrong. Another place that really goes wrong is that in our day, some of that deception we're talking about happens because truth is secondary to one's agenda. Exhibit A. The comments of our president at a national prayer breakfast a few weeks ago. It's not that what he said is necessarily wrong. It's the reason that it was said that bothers me. We divert focus on wrong over here because you know you got wrong in your background too. But that's true enough. Some of the most horrible, atrocious deeds of history were done by Christians in the name of Christ. Don't deny that because history will kill you and your argument. 
But just because it's been wronged in the past doesn't mean you have the opportunity to wink at wrong today. Wrong is wrong, right? Okay, you could have said wrong and it would have fit real well with what I was saying there. Except you'd been wrong. The reality is that so many people in our day, it's not limited to politicians or newscasters, so many people in our day reduce truth to fit their agenda. Churches are full of that garbage behavior. Y'all seem to like some of my dad's sayings. I get a lot of people said, tell us more what your dad said, which I take as don't tell us what you think, tell us what your dad thinks. Here's one of the things my dad used to say. We need to wear this inside the church, okay? Especially on this point. Truth gets reduced to fit one's agenda. Here's what he said. You can shoot any cow in the lot. Just don't shoot the sacred cow. You know what that means? It means every one of us has our own agenda. That's our sacred cow. And when my sacred cow starts getting challenged by truth, my postmodern thinking says, well, the truth is relative. Just because you say that's truth doesn't mean it fits. And even if it does, my sacred cow cannot be sacrificed, even for truth. So here's the good news of all of that for us. The bad news is that Satan is a master at deceiving us. The great news is that God knew that was coming. And through Jesus himself, his son, said to his disciples, which stretches to us, and John reminds that early church and he reminds us that that Holy Spirit that is the other one, just like Jesus Christ, has taken up residence in you. And from the inside, he says, this is the way, walk in this. If you're struggling with whether or not you belong to Jesus Christ, and I I have to believe with this many people, some of us in here are struggling with that today, or we have that pattern in our lives. Here's a great truth for you, a good practical point of reference. Are you positioning yourself to hear the Spirit's voice? Have you taken a step to the side and instead of walking the straight and narrow, have you stepped off and have you found yourself now weeks, months, years, decades down the truth of the lie? And if you're far away from God in your spiritual development and your spiritual sensitivity, you might need to take the step to reposition yourself to hear the Spirit's promptings. Because I'll promise you, if you belong to Him, you'll hear His voice. If you're not, if you're not hearing His voice, I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. I'm trying to get you to nail it down. Because I guarantee you there's a better way to live than following Satan's lies. Let's pray. So where is it with you and God today? Find yourself wandering, trying to make sense of life that is more of a challenge than it ought to be. 
more work than it ought to be? Find yourself having a hard time loving people? Always drama in your life? What might the Holy Spirit be saying to you even now? As he whispers, and a whisper that sounds like a freight train in your spirit. Walk here. One of the great things about the love and the grace of God is that it doesn't matter how far away from him you are. All it takes to get back is a simple admission of need to take responsibility for the wandering that you've done. And just like that, God says, now we're back together walking the way we should. So how is it with you today? Father, we ask that you would work in hearts, change lives, give us sensitive spirits, have your way with us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.